Law Focus Podcast, bringing you the facts, handing you your rights. This is Law Focus. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Law Focus. My name is Millicent Ndiweni, your voice of law for the evening right here on VFM 88.1. Many of us do not have a good understanding of the legal system in South Africa, both criminal or civil. What is pertinent about law, however, what is crucial in a courtroom is evidence. That is what determines the verdict of a case. And without it, it is very difficult to prove your case and even more difficult for the judge who hears your matter to rule justiciably. Hence today, we have decided that it is important for us to get into the aspect of understanding the law of evidence for our own benefit, to know as we read the news or get to hear other people's experiences how it actually works, and perhaps think about how we can try and improve how to compile evidence worthy of a judge's ears, just in case we end up in a courtroom for whatever situation. Join us as we are in conversation with Advocate William Karam from Legal Aid, as well as Dr. Florencia Belvedere from the Public Affairs Research Institute to make sense of all these complexities with us. This wouldn't be a conversation without your inputs. If you wish to join the conversation, you can send us a tweet on at VowFM using the hashtag LawFocus. You can also send us a voice note on WhatsApp and the number to dial is 084-078-4912. Do stay tuned for the upcoming discussion. But before we get into that, let us first see which stories are making headlines this week. Here are our legal hotspots. Rounding up all, all the top stories of the week. Legal hotspots. In our first story this week, Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa says the government will give priority to elderly white farmers when it starts compensating those who lost their properties during the controversial land reforms. Mnangagwa says that they are not under pressure to pay all farmers and that the government is in talks with the British government to help them contribute to this compensation. The Finance and Agriculture Ministry say that they have budgeted over 50 million Zimbabwean dollars in payments to white commercial farmers whose properties were seized two decades ago under President Mugabe. The Zimbabwean government reportedly views this compensation as a way to mend its relationship with the West. Uh, Meanwhile, the country has been seeking assistance from other countries as its economy continues to decline. And in our final story, the government published the Tourism Amendment Bill, which stipulates that short-term home rentals will fall under the Tourism Act as of Friday. This comes after growing concerns that the country's hotels are losing millions of rands because some tourists choose to use Airbnb instead. The amendment empowers the Minister of Tourism to lay down thresholds for Airbnb in South Africa. These thresholds may include limits on the number of nights that guests are allowed to stay or how much an income uh, an Airbnb may actually earn. Rounding up all, all the top all stories, of the, stories of the week, it's Legal Hotspots. Imagine yourself in court for a trial that deeply affects you. Perhaps it was a rape and the only people who were there were you and the rapist. Or a murder that has taken place and the only people who were present were the murdered, the alleged murderer, and a tenant in the house. 
you are a close relative to the victim and you seek justice for your loved one, obviously by seeing the perpetrator locked up. Now, before the central witness takes the stand, and for purposes of our analogy, that will be the raped person or the tenant who witnessed the murder. This witness now dies. The one person who can possibly testify about the events of the crime is no more. Have you ever thought about what would happen in such a situation? Well, we spoke to Advocate William Karam from Legal Aid. He has extensive experience in the legal profession, an expert of criminal law and a frequent judge at the High Court of South Africa, Gauteng Local Division. He schooled us on how some of these complex realities are dealt with as well as other insightful information about the legal system. Joining us now in studio here on Law Focus is William Karam, who is from Legal Aid and is an advocate who has also done a lot of acting acting in the high courts um, as a judge and he specializes in criminal law and he joins us now to help us unpack the topic. I mean, many of us do not have a good understanding of the legal system in South Africa, both criminal and civil. And what is pertinent about the law, however, is that what is crucial is in a courtroom, you need evidence. And there's good evidence, there's bad evidence. And unfortunately, evidence is what determines whether you're going to win the case or not. And so today we've decided that we want to understand how the law of evidence works for our own benefits to know as we read the news and um, as we hear other people's experiences um, to be able to actually try and improve how we are able to compile evidence worthy of a judge's ears because you never actually know when you yourself might end up in a courtroom for whatever situation and we also give each other advice sometimes in life and hopefully we are able to advise each other better. Thank you so much for joining us right here on Law Focus, Mr. Karim. Welcome. Thank you. Let's start with answering what actually evidence is. Okay, evidence is essentially a story, essentially, of what the witness is coming to tell the court about. Um, So basically, if you, for example, were a victim or a witness, you would come and you would give your story to the court. Uh, We have various types of evidence. You have circumstantial evidence which is where for example um, the court has to look at the circumstances surrounding the offense where where there is no direct evidence so you did not directly witness the event or you you didn't you weren't a spectator for want of a better word so if for example we can look at the famous Oscar trial there were only the two people in the house that evening. So then the court looks at circumstantial evidence. It looks at all the surrounding circumstances as to, to in, in order to ascertain whether the accused version can be said to be reasonably possibly true or not. And I guess that's wherein also lies the complexities about the law of evidence because sometimes how do you then know which story to believe? Absolutely. Um, but having regard to the fact that we're dealing with very serious issues in the sense that, you know, um, we, we all have a right to freedom. Now, we're looking at possibly or potentially putting away somebody, depriving them of their right to freedom 
depending, of course, on the nature of the offence for very many years. And that is why the, the crux of the whole issue is that the evidence must be tested. The evidence needs to be tested. Um, we, all people are imperfect and people can have a grudge against somebody else. They can come with, it happens all the time, with false evidence. So the evidence needs to be tested, which is done under cross-examination in order to ascertain the quality of the evidence, the veracity of the actual evidence. Yeah, and I think the importance of this conversation is also sometimes a witness, a key witness might die and while a court case is actually taking place and that has an impact, a huge influence on how the matter is then going to be decided. What actually then really does happen when something like this happens, a key witness dying? Well, if, if, for example, the key witness is the complainant, so say, for example, we have a rape, and the actual victim of the rape is the person who's, who, who dies, and there are no witnesses, then the state is forced to withdraw the charges essentially to abandon the case. So the perpetrator so is the perpetrator free, goes free, so to speak. Yes. Sure. It's, it's unfortunate, but um, how then, what then would the evidence be to bring the man to justice? How do you convict somebody when a key witness or the only witness and has I guess vanished that's why or died? In so many cases, people might feel then that the law is unjust because you don't understand that but the key witness has died unfortunately that's the only person who could have made the case and if that person is not there then you're going to see the alleged rapist walking in the streets absolutely sure that is that is uh, uh, there are instances that i myself have experienced not many but there are instances where we all know that the accused is guilty as sin. The prosecution knows, the defence, his own advocate knows, the defence counsel knows, the judge knows, everybody knows. But the quality of the evidence is so poor that the court's hands are tied. That is so unfair. So what makes the quality rich? Well, it depends, as I said, on, on, on the veracity of the evidence. How good is the actual testimony? Um, the evidence needs to be tested. So the witness undergoes cross-examination. And if the person is grilled and yet comes, handles himself well or uh, does not fold, you know, answers directly, answers properly, answers competently, then often you have a problem. If, if the evidence is weak, in other words, look, when there's, when there's solid evidence, for example, fingerprint evidence, say, say it's a robbery. Now, the victims don't know the perpetrator at all. He's never worked in their home. He's never been a contractor for them. And his fingerprints are found all over their home. Obviously, that is very good evidence. In a rape case, the victim does not know 
the perpetrator and then his DNA is found and he's linked to the rape by means of DNA. That is also excellent evidence. But in instances where you don't have these uh, wonderful pieces of evidence, what do you do? I guess in some instances it seems that the injustice about the law, it's almost as if you, who is the victim or survivor of a, a crime, is put on charge, on trial, um, and you are being checked against how well you speak, um, etc., as opposed to the perpetrator being put on trial. I mean, these are some of the arguments that can easily be raised about the seemingly inconsistencies of um, the law um, and what democracy actually really means and human rights. Yes, although, although um, I must say, it's not essentially how well the person speaks. It's basically how well are there contradictions in the evidence? Are there discrepancies in the evidence? Are there inconsistencies? So the court has to weigh up all, all these aspects. If, if a witness, for example, in the evidence in chief gives you a version or answers certain questions a certain way, and then when the cross-examination begins, they change and they give a different um, version then it becomes problematic. Then it becomes hugely problematic. Okay, so we've managed to then uncover what happens when a witness, um, a key witness dies. When a docket goes missing, what happens then? That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we all know of, um, particularly in past times when uh, the dockets vanished or the dockets were sold, corruption, etc., these days, the good news is that the dockets are not, you don't have a single docket anymore. Mm. So the dockets are duplicated, triplicated even. Um, I believe that they are now also scanned to ensure that should there be a corrupt of official, and it needn't only be a policeman, it could be a court official, but in the event that a docket vanishes, we, we have the safeguard that there, there are other dockets. Mm. If the docket has been handed over already to the defence and the docket vanishes, then obviously the defence would be required to provide a copy of the docket. Mm. But the problem is where, where docket vanishes and it cannot be replicated. In other words, what would happen is the police have the docket. The docket then vanishes. How do you go to trial? Remember, um, our, our law is that the defense is entitled to the contents of the docket to see what the evidence is against the accused. So if the docket does vanish. The police then have to start from scratch, go and find the witnesses, if they can, because remember, witnesses move around, witnesses relocate, they emigrate, they die. So 
it's a very difficult task for the investigation team to then start looking for these witnesses, finding them, taking witness statements, etc. And I mean, there are so many difficulties about even how the legal system also operates. Um, I'll give an instance. There are people who work in the medical negligence field and motor vehicle accident claims, for instance, and um, you would, as a person who comes to a lawyer to say my child was born with cerebral palsy and etc the lawyer is going to they need to get hospital records for instance you call some of these hospitals and they'll tell you the scanners are not working and i'm drawing from what you said about police dockets are also now scanned and for years scanners are not working this is south africa this our government um i don't know things there's a lot of inefficiencies what is going to happen then? Because then it's almost like it's the same thing as a docket vanishing. Even though you're trying to improve the system, it's not improved in such a manner that there, it's unlikely that there'll ever be a situation where things still go missing. And even the selling of dockets, it's so bizarre. To whom would a police officer sell a docket to? Well, the docket would be sold to the accused or, the, or his family because obviously they, they believe and in many instances they correct with no docket there's how, no case there's no trial there's no case there are no witness statements so basically um and it's happened many uh, we we have i wouldn't say many but we have quite a number of prosecutors in prison for corruption that's good uh, policemen wardens at the prisons uh, um, but these things happen and uh, not to make excuses but bearing in mind the very high volume of crime that we have in our country um, it, it would be wonderful for example to have a, a scenario for example in the Scandinavian countries where you can count on your one hand the number of murders you have in a year and you have these huge investigative teams if there's a murder between 60 to 70 uh, officials in all fields forensic investigators detectives you on know, a single case. converge on one case and to solve the case look at our crime statistics um, it, it, it's very difficult to have that infrastructure and that um, human resources absolutely to yeah. to deal with the volume of our our crime and are there instances where if in spite of a docket missing um, a case can still be concluded that is a very good question and it's a very difficult question um, <clears throat> I myself don't know of of any matter in well in my years of experience where where a trial has proceeded where there is no docket because it is a fundamental right for an accused person to know what the evidence is against him. Um, when we when we speak about a docket missing, is it is it the entire docket? If it's the entire docket, as I said, the police or the investigative team will have to go out and 
make a duplicate. And if, in the event that they're unable to do that, it's a huge issue. You mentioned earlier about if if a key witness dies. Um, now, I'm talking about exceptional circumstances. So say, for example, six armed men come into your home and <clears throat> you are there with your family and one of the family members is pulled into the lounge and raped and subsequently dies. The rest, even though that victim, that complainant of the actual rape has died, obviously the trial would go on and the and the accused could be could very well be convicted of rape because all of the rest of the family witnessed this and they would be good witnesses. But again, where it's a single victim or complainant with no witnesses, very difficult to convict because yeah. of the uh, the evidence because issue. Because of the evidence issue. The weight of the evidence will be so... Um, Minimal. And sure. How do, as civilians, how do you deal with some of the corruption then that happens in the legal system that ends up affecting us because you are unable to proceed successfully with matters, especially when it's within the control of you or the official? instances of corruption for instance i mean a witness dying we can't do anything about that but corruption on the other hand how do we deal with that yes it's a huge issue um what what the courts have done is quite rightly so made examples of these corrupt people remember they are in positions of trust so when it comes to sentencing them after assuming they are convicted when it comes to sentencing them, the sentences are indeed very harsh. To send a message out to their colleagues, don't do this, don't get involved in this, you will go to jail for a very long time. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm currently involved in a matter, um, obviously I won't speak too much about it, but where a prosecutor in the regional court was convicted of corruption we're talking an amount of 3,500 rand, that's all, to withdraw a case. And he was sentenced to eight years direct imprisonment. We are taking the matter on appeal to attempt to reduce the sentence somewhat. But eight years in a prison for 3,500 rand is very steep. So the message is out there. Trying to make it as clear as possible. Don't do it. Just don't be a, a corrupt official. Absolutely. Do what you're supposed to do, which is help society, help us to make South Africa a better place. Then we also have what we know as subpoenas, which is when the courts, you get a court. Um, yes, the subpoena of witnesses. The subpoena yes. witnesses. And when they fail to appear, what happens? When they fail to appear, um, the court will then issue invariably a warrant of arrest and then the police go out and arrest these people so it's easy as a subpoenaed witness to also become um somewhat of uh not a perpetrator as such i don't have the right words but someone who, an accused for failing not accused for the crime but that uh, failure failing to appear absolutely to appear. 
and and the, there are penalties for that. What are those penalties? Well, basically, um, they can look. It all depends on the circumstances. If, for example, the witness didn't appear because they were lying in a hospital undergoing surgery, we understand those things. But where it's a flagrant disregard of the subpoena, you know, uh, we don't care to hell with you kind of thing, then basically the court can impose. Do you think people understand the importance of what a subpoena actually really is? Um, I remember a friend sharing with me about her experience in her work of a witness who did not, she was a witness to uh, an accident that happened where a child was um, hit by a car and she was not interested in testifying, testifying, but she's already given a statement to the police, unfortunately, and... um, there was just no regard from her side to appear. She felt, you guys are wasting my time. I'm not interested. Stop bothering me. I, I don't want anything to do with this matter. Yes. You see, that that is extremely unfortunate because people need to understand that that not only are they delaying the administration of justice, but they are prejudicing that family's claim, that little child's claim, for hospital expenses in the future, etc., etc., um, it's very important that you do respond to a subpoena. Um, if you do not appear, the matter gets it has to be postponed, and in other words, justice is delayed. So it's it's extremely important. What what is Unfortunate in our legal system, especially in the lower courts, is the amount of postponements that we have. So you will have a witness coming to court or even a complainant, the victim in other words, coming to court over and over. The case is postponed, the attorney is sick, uh, the docket's not ready, this report isn't ready, and eventually they are not interested, even though they are the victim, not just a witness to a matter, they are a victim. You know, they have to take a day off work, they have to come to the court, they have to wait, and then at two o'clock they are told the case is postponed for X, Y or Z reason. It's extremely unfair. Unacceptable on, on the witness. On the witness, absolutely. And you did say that then a subpoenaed witness who fails for disregard of the law to appear will be arrested um, and then what are the penalties is there a fine is there a sentence that they serve well if 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 the um, I don't have the the act before me but there definitely are penalties if obviously the court finds that there is no valid reason and that it's been a disregard of the subpoena, then absolutely there are repercussions. Mm. Mostly a fine. Mostly a fine. Then there's also what we know as hearsay evidence. What role does it actually play in court? Is it important? Hearsay evidence is very important. What What it relates to basically is 
essentially hearsay evidence is inadmissible evidence because you for example as the complainant or the witness will say my friend told me x y or z now that is not admissible evidence because you we are interested in what you yourself saw at the scene of crime not what you heard or what somebody told you those people must come and give evidence so, so it's basically second hand for want of a better expression second hand evidence which is not good evidence that is why it's inadmissible but if that witness is going to be called to give evidence then obviously the court will allow you to say and my friend told me x y or z because the friend is going to come and confirm this but okay if not the evidence then it's problematic allowed. so yeah. so the importance of hearsay evidence is the fact that you are a, if you are called in to actually testify in court to say this is what i heard then it's admissible yes if for example you you say my friend Sipo told me that he saw that the accused did have a firearm. That is inadmissible. But if Sipo is coming to testify subsequently to confirm that he told you that, mm. he saw with his own eyes that the accused had a firearm tucked away in his trousers, then it is admissible. Then it is admissible. Otherwise, it's not admissible. Otherwise, it's not admissible. Okay. Because how do we test it again? It's all it all relates to the the Verifying. credibility, the the strength of the evidence. Yeah. Why must we deal with second hand evidence when we actually looking at good evidence, strong evidence, reliable evidence? It must be reliable. And uh, the the law of evidence is so complex, it really is, because there's hearsay evidence on the one hand there's circumstantial evidence on the one hand then there's also this issue of privilege yes what role does that play in court yes that is basically um legal professional privilege that is where for example you come to consult with me you are the accused i am your legal practitioner so you come and speak to me about your case the discussion we have pertaining to your case, to your seeking of legal advice, is privileged. That may not be revealed in a court. However, I mean, I, I would not then subsequently be able to go and give evidence that when I met with Melissant, she told me that she killed the victim. Is it? But, but the privilege pertains to you, not to the legal practitioner. To the client so and this only pertains to a legal situation so if for example I go to my psychologist or psychiatrist to confess to my priest in a confessional the privilege does not apply the priest or the counselor psychologist can be subpoenaed to tell the court what did the person say to you it so, only applies with the lawyer and a client. so it only applies to the lawyer and client so um people who are married 
it doesn't apply. Well, y- uh, yes, it does there, but that is not a. That relates to if a a witness is a compellable witness. So basically, a a a wife cannot testify against her husband. Why? Or vice versa. Well, because of the very nature of the relationship. And even even if she's the only one who is able to actually give um, the best evidence because she knows um, of the dealings or whatever it is, still. Well, look, she she can testify. It's not that it's completely excluded. Um, if it if but um, in in a criminal matter, say for example, the husband is is the the abuser or the victim, of course she can testify against him because she's laid a charge against him. Mm-hmm. Uh, parents and children also? Doesn't work? No, Privilege? No, 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 it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so the, father, uh, the child can come and testify that he saw the father stabbing the mother. Mm. I think this is very... It's compound. It's a lot of information. And I'm wondering how do... Ordinary citizens get, you know, become aware of this information without being in a courtroom because you're actually dealing with a case without having to go to law school to get an LLB. Um, because I'm wondering if the assumption of the legal system is that you would know, you, you should know how it is. How else would I know? I wouldn't know some of the information if I wasn't interviewing you. I wouldn't know information if I'm not studying law. How do we actually deal with this? <laughs> Is it too pra- social? <laughs> legal practitioners themselves struggle with the complexities of evidence. What what I would recommend or, or, or possibly suggest would be a very good um, a, um, idea is to introduce a kind of introduction to law, maybe as a module in school or at the university where the ordinary person can just get a basic understanding of how the court works. I think that would be important. And finally, can you give us advice on how to then be learn to be evidence savvy in case <laughs> any situation lands us in court? So what advice could you give us? Well, the witness must tell the truth. That is the most important thing. Once, once a witness tells the truth, remember the truth Will, will always be in your mind. You cannot lie about the truth. So whether you are cross-examined for five days on end, your answers will be the same because you've told the truth. The difficulty comes where you've made up stories or lies and then your versions start to differ and that is where the gap you become, starts showing and the evidence becomes poor and weak absolutely this was of course advocates mr william Karam, who was joining us right here on law focus thank you so much for taking your time to come and help us understand how the law of evidence works in south africa we appreciate your time thank you very much law focus and you your rights In our earlier interview, we spoke generally and legally about how the legal system in South Africa works. But simply because this is how it works does not mean that we cannot have a socio-legal critique of it. We thought that the criminal justice system in particular is a good starting point to improvements that can be made in the legal system. 
for this analysis, we spoke to Dr. Florencia Belvedere from the Public Affairs Research Institute at Wits University. And together with her team, they have been doing research on how appointments at the National Prosecuting Authority and police trickle down and affect the day-to-day running of the criminal justice system. This is a conversation we had with her. We are now joined on the line by Dr. Florencia Belvedere from the Public Affairs Research Institute. She's basically going to help us unpack and analyze the criminal justice system. Thank you so much for joining us right here on Law Focus, Dr. Florencia. Welcome. You are currently doing research around the appointment of some of these people in the criminal justice system. Can you kindly briefly share with us your research and what you have found out thus far? Yes, there's, there's a number of initiatives that have been, that have been taking place um, that are starting to try to fill the gaps, right? So like I said, there's been a number of cases and we know we've had the also the Mojoro Inquiry Commission um, that is also looking at issues around fit and proper and whether certain individuals should be heading the National Prosecuting Authority. Then you have, for instance, President Ramaphosa, who decided, um, even though it's not in law, uh, you know, the president appoints the National Director of Public Public Prosecutions. And recently, with the appointment of Advocate Batoy, the president kind of went out of his way and decided to institute a panel that made recommendations to him. So that was a very positive initiative. The problem is that we don't have it in law. So if we get maybe another president who doesn't feel like doing that, then we're back to a process that is really not transparent and it's really left in the hands of of the president to appoint without any kind of oversight of any kind. You know, and it's the same thing that we are finding with a for instance, the head of IPID, right? It says that a suitably qualified candidate must occupy that post. And that's it. It doesn't say you must have been, you know, have a background in policing or in investigations or management, nothing like that. It just says suitably qualified. Well, what is suitably qualified for me and for you might be very different. And it just also allows for you know, a possible political manipulation of a number of these posts, right? Um, And it's one of those decisions that we don't want that because it's somebody who needs to investigate the police and it's a critical function. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot to be done so that we can so that we can make sure that we have institutions within the criminal justice system that are you know, at least that we put people in power in those positions that have the requisite knowledge and, and integrity. It is so unfortunate that our legal system is in a dire state. Was it bound from the onset of democracy to get so messy? Well, I think we also need to think about it contextually. You know, some of the reasons why maybe there wasn't such a definition of all of these requirements was that also, you know, at at the time of uh, post-94, there was a real need to bring together um, the public service, different institutions, build institutions, and it was also in a different context. You know, I think we needed as a country to have people in those positions that would also be willing to share the, the vision of the new South Africa. So there was, I think there was, 
less concern about putting people in those positions who would do the wrong thing, if I can put it that way. But I think as, as you know, 25 years into democracy, we're sitting in a very different situation where some of, you know, some of the vision of what South Africa was meant to be uh, maybe has fallen by the wayside. We're much more, you know, kind of individualist and greedy uh, persons are occupying these positions of power. There isn't, a, that vision is not shared, right? Um, and there's much more, as we are seeing with a lot of these commissions, is that particularly the Zonda Commission is the extent to which there's a number of people who have used these positions for their own private gain as opposed to the good of the country. So um, so I think it's it's something that is now coming, you know, it's, it's raising its head, like saying, well, the context um, within which the events or the requirements were set, you know, that context has changed substantially, and therefore there's a need to kind of reinforce those um, those aspects, at the very least, you know, just at the level of appointments and removal to ensure also the independence of many of these institutions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, one can look, you know, in hindsight and say we were bound to go there, but we can't because I think we, you know, we couldn't predict what could have happened, you know, 25 years afterwards. Um, yeah. So we just, I think now we just need to make sure that we put these these safeguards in place so that at the very least we make sure that we have people going into these positions that have the necessary qualifications. That doesn't still take away from the fact that we we need to continue to be vigilant, right? Because, I mean, I've worked in the public service and even if, okay, you are, you know, hired and you're recruited and you work in the public service, uh, what you do all those years that you're in the public service is just as important. And having people who are managing and monitoring what you do is, is critical. So that's another aspect of it. Yeah. South Africa has Chapter 9 institutions that were placed to support our constitution and ensure that our democracy actually works by holding the government to account. But in spite of this, we find that we still have major challenges. Who and what is to blame for this conundrum and condition? Well, you know, uh, for one, of course, I mean, you would expect our, our, you know, people who are leading these institutions to act with integrity and honesty and do their work because they are serving the public. Um, in many ways, it's, you know, we, we should be their bosses. Um, I think, you know, our chapter nine institutions, some of them have been, you know, we can't put them all in the same bag. I think we've had a very strong public protector. Um, I would say my own personal opinion is that the Human Rights Commission has a lot of powers. If you look at actually the powers that have been given to a number of these chapter nine, they can subpoena, they can actually you know, force their hand um, if they feel that um, there's, uh, you know, a government department or a body that is not doing its work. It's just that I think, again, it also depends a lot of times 
uh, on the people who are leading those institutions. I mean, if we look at Advocate Madoncella, she took the Office of the Public Protector to another level, right? Um, and, and we're hopeful that, you know, with the Human Rights Commission, the same thing would happen, yeah? Um, also, I think also issues of resources a lot of times with the Chapter 9 institutions, um, you know, that they've, they've got a limited ability to carry out the mandate because of that. But I think a lot of it is also about um, the people, the leadership, who is leading these institutions and the courage uh, and the principles that those individuals have. Um, in terms of leading them. I mean, the other the other key institution is parliament, right? In terms of oversight. But it also, sometimes, it can be a two-edged sword because if we look at, for instance, a, parliament can have a, a say. In some, in some cases, in some appointments, there will be a recommendation and then parliament needs to approve it, right? But if you have a, a parliament where you tend to have a party that has a, a substantial majority, right, and where those parliamentarians are voting with the party and not necessarily on the person or the issue and the level of integrity of that individual, um, that can also be a bit dangerous because in that oversight role is not really carried out as it should because it's more of a, you know, it's kind of more of a, I don't want to say mob mentality, but you just kind of follow the party. So you follow the line of the party. The party says, get rid of this individual, and you do. We saw this, for instance, very recently with the, the issue around uh, Robert McBride, right, he, who was the head of IPID, of the... Um, Independent Police Investigations Directorate. Um, yeah, so it can be, you know, it has a role to play, but we also, when you have a, a very large majority, it can also be a danger because you don't get, and, and because you don't have people also exercising um, their judgment in terms of maybe particular, a particular individual and whether X person qualifies or a report is good or not. You just vote with the line you vote with the party regardless what can then be be done to ensure that politics does not influence the legal system in any way yeah well you know it's 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 very difficult to do that i think what we can do is put a number of safeguards i think for us at pari what we are trying to do is look at okay let's start from something very doable and very practical which is um the very least, let's start from the beginning. Let's try to get people appointed to these positions that really have what it takes to be in those positions. I think, uh, and we need to continue to be vigilant. You know, we have to, we've, we've had, for instance, very positive involvement of a number of civil society organizations, whether it is, uh, you know, some of the legal um, Organizations like Freedom Under Law, uh, we've had um, also the Helen Sussman Foundation has done some court cases to raise some of these issues in Corruption Watch and the Institute for Security Studies. Uh, all of them also trying to give, you know, give that input to say how, this is how we could improve procedures 
for appointment. And I think there's also a willingness now uh, to support the work of the, you know, or the office of the National Prosecuting Authority so that we can ensure that we have, you know, because there's, a, there's an opening there, right? We There's a new person who has in seems to have integrity and experience and, you know, a lot of things could be done. So it's very important as a civil society that we keep an eye, you know, just like the media keeps doing, which I think is absolutely important, um, that we keep, we keep those institutions in check and that we speak out when that line, can, you know, is crossed between politics and administration. Um, but I think we will, you know, we will never get the politics out fully. But what we can do is is be stronger on the safeguards that we try to adhere to. Based on your research on appointments in the criminal justice system, how rampant would you say is corruption within the criminal justice system? Well, we haven't actually done, uh, you know, the research we're doing now is just particularly on the issue of appointments and removals. I think I've been following quite closely, you know, as party, we have an, an interest in also looking at what's been happening with the Zonda Commission. And, and if you follow what's been happening recently, um, a lot of the issues that the commission is looking at is around the criminal justice system. And, and they're starting to identify, you know, patterns of how key people in key institutions were... Um, we're taking out of those posts, right? Whether it was because they were through disciplinary procedures and charges that often were not substantiated. And then the fact that maybe others that would be more lenient to breaking the rules would be put in place. So the whole process of really capturing or, or taking over those institutions and, and, and looking at the patterns, right, that happened in the hawks, in the police, in the... A national Prosecuting Authority. Um, so I couldn't tell you in terms of the extent, but what we are, what at least is coming out through the work of the Zondo Commission is an analysis and an, uh, trying to understand some of these patterns and how how these processes were taking place, you know? And, and you look at the similarities between kind of what happened in the Hawks, what happened in the National Prosecuting Authority, what happened in SARS, um, so it is it is quite concerning, and that's why for us it's looking at what can we do going forward, you know. And some of this is also in the National Development Plan, you know, that was developed many years ago. Some of these initiatives are there. Perhaps we also should look at positives. What is it that we can actually celebrate about our legal system? Well, I think we've got, you know, I think we have to give it to the, you know, the legal system that we are where we are today, that there have been extremely positive things coming out by, like I said, a number of actors taking cases to court, reaffirming the importance of the Constitution, um, ensuring that, uh, you know, following the work also of entities like the public protector and unearthing a lot of the a lot of the corruption and the state capture that we've experienced. The fact that we're having these commissions I think is actually very positive. The fact that we have initiatives like even the Judges Matter initiative, right? Which is that civil society playing an active role, for instance, in um, giving information about nominated 
person to key judicial positions. So if you go onto their website, they will give you a whole detail of person X, uh, what kinds of judgments are done, their history, and so on and so forth. So I think there's a lot more interest. I think we are uh, a lot of the gains. I think as civil societies, we've got our eyes open. We are willing to speak up. We've got we've got a vibrant media. And the fact that we have, I think, in terms of, if we think about the courts uh, and our constitution, I think they're second to none. You know, we've had very strong, and it's, it's very important that we've had such a strong legal system that has stood up uh, in the face of all these violations and people willing to take these matters on. So I think, I think you know, as much as there's things that we need to be fixed, I think uh, that having a strong legal system has allowed South Africa not to descend into further chaos. That was Dr. Florencia Belvedere from the Public Affairs Research Institute joining us right here on Raw Focus. Thank you so much, Dr. Florencia, for your knowledge and your time. Thank you very much, and thank you for the opportunity. Law Focus on 88.1 Point of Information. A conversation about the legal system is certainly not one that can be exhausted. It certainly is complex. As much as it is in our best interest to understand it, it is still also open to critique. Our conversation this evening with advocate William Karam revealed the simple and bare truths of what the legal system entails, how the law of evidence works. Our interview with Dr. Florencia Belvedere, on the other hand, went further where she shared her research on the state of the legal system in South Africa, where there are gaps in the criminal justice system and propositions of what can be done to restore and improve the system as a whole. From our producer, Simba Honde, our technical producer, Kutwano Sirami, and myself, Millicent Ndiweni. Thank you for tuning into Law Focus tonight. Good night. Law Focus Podcast.